Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Greetings, I'm Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture with a special mini-series in Landscape Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And today, I am delighted to bring you two very special guests. The book is Farmscape. The Design of Productive Landscapes by Phoebe Lickwar and Roxy Thoron, published by Routledge in 2020. Hi, ladies. Welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Let's start with uh, Phoebe. Uh, Can you tell the audience about yourself? Uh, So I am a professor of landscape architecture at the University of Texas at Austin, Uh, And I'm also the founding principal of a small design practice uh, called Forge Landscape Architecture. Um, And we have been devoting a lot of our um, recent work um, and research um, over the past couple years to um, farmscapes and and productive landscapes. Roxy? I'm also a professor of landscape architecture. I'm at the University of Oregon in Eugene, Oregon, and I am the founding director of a research group here on campus called the Fuller Center for Productive Landscapes. And that's a program where we have been studying um, the kind of middle landscape between designed areas and wilderness areas, all the um, forests, farm, agriculture, uh, infrastructure of primarily of the Willamette Valley here, but also some work that we do in the uh, Northeast region of the United States. Uh, So ladies, uh, what was the motivation for writing this book and how the two of you uh, decide to collaborate on it? Um, Phoebe can talk about her own uh, path into it, but for me, it was through the Fuller Center, we do a summer field school in Pennsylvania And it has a theme around productivity each year. And the first year we were looking at a 400-acre property where we have the field school. And it was originally designed in the early 20th century, about 1904, by the Olmsted brothers. And had gone into a period of disrepair. And one of the first things we did for the owners was a studio design looking at different types of agriculture on the property. And through that, we started, the owners hired the landscape firm Nelson Bird Woltz, and we were working with their team on reimagining this property. And it just kind of snowballed out of that into why aren't more landscape architects thinking about the design of farms and incorporating agriculture into their design work? And then Phoebe had a similar path, and the two paths intersected. And I guess, Phoebe, you can jump in and talk about your own interests. Yeah. So I guess for me, it really began um, when I was um, practicing at uh, Peter Walker's office in Berkeley, California. We were working on a project um, that is now an art museum um, where rotational grazing and uh, this sort of agricultural component 
was in the early stage of possibility. Um, and I think like investigating the design um, opportunities that that presented was super exciting to me. Um, and I, uh, I became uh, to be really interested in, um, in agricultural landscapes, but also in the application of um, sort of regenerative agricultural uh, principles and methods in other kinds of project types, say a museum or um, a school. Uh, and um, so in my um, academic work, um, when I started uh, teaching, um, I, was, uh, I was researching the same property um, that uh, Roxy was looking at um, and talking to Nelson Bird Woltz. Um, and that's sort of how uh, Roxy and I were introduced. And uh, we just started a conversation and the idea for the book was, was born out of that um, email exchange over a summer. So let's start with a little history. Um, where did farmscapes and agricultural landscapes come from uh, in your book? Where do we start? Um, the first project we look at, uh, so the in developing the book, we wanted to include a range of locations and times. So the earliest project is from 1735, and the later case studies are you know, still under design, under construction. Um, evolving. And the 1735 project is a farm called Woburn Farm outside of London. And it's considered the first um, first English example of what's called a ferme orne or an ornamented farm. And the idea there was that to have a country estate, if you were a wealthy landowner, you had a country estate that was self, uh, self-sustaining and produced the food for everybody who worked on the farm. And if you've seen shows like Downton Abbey, you know that these large estates had hundreds of people working on them in various capacities. So the estates had two different realms. One was the pleasure realm and one was the agricultural realm. The two were kept separate. And in the idea of the Fair Mornay, you would use both agricultural forms and plants in the recreational landscape but you would also have a recreational landscape moving through the agricultural fields. And it was used as a kind of aesthetic backdrop that talked about healthy country living. And uh, when did this come to the United States? When did uh, this type of uh, uh, farmscape, when did we first see it appear in the United States? Um, The ornamented farm idea shows up fairly early. Um, Thomas Jefferson visited Woburn Farm and a few others in England in some of his travels. And projects like Jefferson's um, Monticello or Madison's Montpelier are ornamented farm style plantations. And uh, so, okay, I see that here. By the way, so people who can't see the book, because we're just talking about it. Yeah, it's beautiful. You did a great job of, uh, I'm looking here at all the pictures from the uh, that uh, estate, uh, Jefferson, et cetera, the nice pictures and diagrams that you did from this. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, Yeah, we used a bunch of different ways of studying these projects. And I'm sort of monopolizing the conversation here because mostly I did the earlier historic projects and Phoebe worked on the more contemporary ones. So I think, Phoebe, feel free to jump in and interrupt me at any time. But 
For some of the earlier projects, we did archival research, finding old photographs, old maps, letters talking about the projects. Um, for many of them, we did re-photography. So, and in particular, Phoebe is a wonderful pho photographer, and she went to many of these places and took contemporary images of the properties. Um, we also interviewed people who are currently managing the properties. Um, and so it was a variety of different research methods to, to get at what these places were and how they operated and what some of the challenges, particularly for the older projects, what some of the challenges have been as the properties change, as you know, plants grow, soil erodes, how do you manage a cultural landscape while also maintaining productivity over centuries? And sometimes that's not possible for some of these. And I'll just add that um, one thing we really wanted to try to piece together um, was a plan drawing for each project. So um, at the start of each chapter, there's um, a plan drawing. And um, with the historic examples, you know, because some of them uh, didn't, you know, there, there were not existing, there wasn't existing documentation in a kind of plan drawing form. Um, it was a, um, a, a little mini research project to, um, to piece back together um, what these projects were um, from that view, uh, in, from that aerial view, and to, to draw the important parts that we were discussing um, in the writing. And um, that, that was something that was really enjoyable um, you know, Roxy and I working together on on those, um, particularly in the um, in the more historic um, case studies, um, and we engage some of our students as well um, to help us draw those um, those projects. So it was a collaborative endeavor and um, and a really fun part of the book. Um, what was one of your favorite case study historical case studies that you really enjoyed uh, researching? They were all really fun for me, but I think two of my favorites were Middleton Place, which is a rice plantation outside of Charleston, South Carolina, from about 1741. And then um, Murkiston Farm, which was Martha Brooks Hutchison's um, own home outside of, uh, in Morris County, New Jersey. And that one's from the early 20th century, from about 1910 to 1960. Um and both really fun projects for very different reasons. Uh, Martha Brooks Hutchison is just such a feisty character. It was a lot of fun reading more about her, reading her letters. Um, you find the most wonderful things in the archives. Um, she saved copies of articles and she would annotate them in a kind of bold hand with a red pencil. And she could get quite, um, quite energized about her position on landscape architecture. <laughs> so you sort of feel like you learn, you reaching across 50, 60 years, you suddenly feel like you've become friends with this person who died 60 years ago. Um, but at her farm, she had a very um, successful practice around 1900 to 1910, designing estates in New York, New England, and then she married and had a child, and she folded up her practice and continued her professional development and professional life at the farm and through the Garden Club of America 
giving lectures, writing papers, um, and advancing a kind of theory of landscape architecture through that venue. And so it's really interesting to see how she navigated the world of being a mother and a wife in a society. She was wealthy, a society that expected certain things of her, um, while also being very politically active, being interested in the emerging field of ecology and testing that out on her own farm. What does ecological agriculture look like? What does a design aesthetic of ecology look like? So that was a really fun one to kind of dig into and understand a little more deeply. And uh, oh, Phoebe, let me ask you, well, what about uh, what about what are your favorite ones in this book? Hmm. Uh, so many to talk about. Um, <clears throat> I guess, uh, I mean, they were all really enjoyable. Um, and, you know, I visited most of them. Uh, not all. Um, I didn't make it to South Africa. Um, I wish I could have. Um, but, you know, sort of uh, doing in the field research um, and speaking with the, the clients and designers was, um, was really fun. Um, one of the sort of um, really interesting case studies for me was the Green Gulch Farm Zen Center, uh, which is outside of San Francisco, um, where I formerly lived. So I, I was already familiar with this place, um, though not in this particular context. Um, <clears throat> but uh, so Green Gulch Farm, it, it's been evolving um, over decades. And um, recently, um, uh, the uh, Zen Center has taken on an ecological restoration project um, of uh, their creek ecosystems. Um, and uh, it's, uh, they have had to give up space um, in their farm fields in order to do that. So it's this case study that shows a kind of um, push and pull between uh, the productivity of the farm and the desire to restore um, a creek. Um, which had been channelized by the former owner um, and, and uh, impounded in certain places to store water um, for cattle ranching. So the landscape had been massively transformed for one kind of farming. Um, and now the, the sort of Zen Center community, um, uh, which is very focused on the health of the watershed um, and the health of the, the creeks and um, all of the species that populate this place um, has now decided to um, restore the creeks, um, but they've had to modify their farming um, and to make space for that. Um, and so I think it's really exciting to see how uh, landowners, um, when motivated, can make really positive change in the environment. Um, and then to, to think about the form um, of that creek landscape um, and how it contrasts with the sort of regular geometries of uh, the farm fields, um, again, kind of creates this opposition between the two. Um, but in reality, they're completely interdependent. Um, the creek supports um, the farming um, and vice versa. Um, so, yeah, that... Um, it's also an incredibly beautiful place, 
and just the scents and um, uh, all of the different plants. Um, you know, you, you you arrive at Green Gulch Farm and there are these eucalyptus trees, um, which of course smell extraordinary. Um, and as you move through <clears throat> through the property, and um, you can eventually end up at the Pacific Ocean. So, in in terms of sensory experience, it's really outstanding. Um, and uh, and that that also played into um, you know how enjoyable it was to study it. Um, so kind of on that note, you talk about yeah, village homes and, um, you know, when we became more urbanized and less agriculture, and I'm flipping pages in a book here, I'm not supposed to do that. There we go. Um, and you talk about the turbulence and idealism of the early 1970s and the, the counterculture movement of the new suburb. How are you finding that uh, maybe some clients today are like with Nelson Bird, Waltz, et cetera, are they more interested in including agriculture in their projects and making estates again? What did you find? Um, well, I, yes. I mean, I think landscape architects have always been drawn to agriculture uh, be, and have borrowed many of the forms uh, from agriculture um, for ornamental landscapes um, or productive landscapes. Um, but as a kind of fundamental way that human beings shape the land um, and cultivate the land. Agriculture is uh, pretty foundational for um, for the discipline of landscape architecture. Um, I think that what we're seeing now is not really new, but um, a primary factor in in sort of the the fact that um, estates may be uh, privately um, held are looking to be agricultural um, is, I think, coming from a a motivation from the landowners, a desire to establish a kind of uh, self-sustaining and economically sustaining future for the property. Um, and, uh, and, And then I think there's also just an interest um, and a real explosion of the food movement um, and uh, the, you know, sort of lo- growing locally, um, uh, organic locally grown food um, and sort of reaching out to communities uh, through food. Um, so I, those are the two sort of primary things that I see. I think that um, it's still uh, growing in landscape architecture. I mean, one of the reasons that we wanted to write this book is because we felt like, um, it didn't exist. Uh, You know, no, no one had really, um, looked comprehensively at agriculture within landscape architecture. Um, so it still feels like a niche practice, um, and, uh, one that, um, is sure to grow. Yeah, I uh, I've seen Nelson Birdswold's projects, and uh, I started seeing that he had included some agriculture in a project in uh, New Zealand, um, and et cetera. But no, I I haven't seen any any books like yours uh, with farmscape and and of this particular focus. Um, let's can we jump over to like is it Shenyang Architecture University in China? Mm-hmm. How are they approaching agriculture landscapes? Uh, East West is it different? What uh, what why are they doing 
over there? So this was a, a university um, that was built on la- land that was previously agricultural. Um, and uh, the designer, Kanjanyu um, um, of Turnscape, uh, made the decision to retain the agricultural use on the land um, and, and to create a new kind of campus landscape that's based around rice agriculture. Um, they also uh, rotate with some other crops like buckwheat, um, but it is primarily rice fields. Um, and, uh, you know, as he describes it, this was a, um, a budgetary consideration. Um, there was a very short timeline to construction um, and a small budget. Um, and there was an irrigation system in place for agriculture, which they were able to uh, partially reuse. Um, but I think there, there's another um, motivation here in this project, which is um, to try to educate students, young people, um, about the agricultural heritage of this region, um, which uh, produces a lot of rice. Um, and, um, you know, students move through this campus. They see the fields changing throughout the seasons. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and they see, you know, the, the fields being worked. And then on two, uh, two times during the year um, at harvest and, and planting, the academic community actually participates um, in working the field. So it's very much present in their everyday lives um, and sort of ceremonially um, at these two points of the year. Um, and uh, so I think, you know, in terms of um, a case study for the book, um, I think that, you know, if, if you said campus and, and rice agriculture, I wouldn't think that those two things would go together um, typically, you know, I think it's a, it's a striking uh, land use for a university campus. Um, And in that way, it makes it a really interesting project um, for the book. And in the later case studies, the more contemporary case studies, you see that, that the project types kind of diverge um, away from um, the estate or the plantation um, and agriculture is being incorporated in some maybe more unlikely kind of project typologies. Yeah, yeah. if I could just jump in on that. Sure. I think this was one of my motivations. A lot of my work is in a kind of history and theory realm. And one of my motivations was to look at a kind of narrative arc within the discipline, that there's a moment when things industrialize and we separate the production of food from our daily life. And so the earlier projects, as Phoebe just said, are primarily plantations, estates. They're people producing food for themselves as well as for um, commerce. And then food production gets highly commercialized, highly industrialized. And then the later projects are kind of casting back to an earlier way of operating, um, to more of making this thing that literally sustains life visible and present in our daily experience. And as Phoebe just said, in some very kind of surprising ways on campuses and things. And you see client motivation on the various projects um, around education or research, um, around cultural connections and connection to cultural heritage, both the 
ways of growing food, but also the ways of preparing and eating the food, um, and then concerns about ecosystem health and sustainability. Um, so it's, it is heartening to see these projects that are more contemporary um, incorporating agriculture into them, but it is very much a small part of what we do currently. Well, I was just thinking, I, I would love to go outside right now and just uh, dig in the dirt. <laughs> I'm actually looking out my window at my little garden thinking, are those peas sprouting yet? Where are they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, uh, you know, it's funny. We, um, when you say dig in the dirt, it just makes me think of community gardens and Community gardens are, of course, like wildly successful in so many cities and there are wait lists and people, you know, people really want to grow f- their own food um, and they want to garden. <clears throat> um, and in the book, there's uh, there's uh, one project in particular, which is a community garden. Um, we sort of made this criteria at the beginning of the project that um, every... Um, every case study needed to uh, be designed by a designer. Um, and so many community gardens, which are more grassroots efforts or maybe um, kind of evolve um, incrementally um, without the presence of a designer, <clears throat> weren't, weren't part of this project. Um, but the Narum Allotment Gardens, um, which was designed by C.T.H. Sorensen, um, was a community or is a community garden um, that we included, and you know it, initially it was um, designed um, at a time you know when food was scarce, um, and you know the allotment gardens of course have um, have their at their origin um, a kind of way to to provide food for for people who um, who are more vulnerable. Um, and and uh, have less access to food, um, but now um, you know that that sort of pressure um, has gone away, and the gardeners that I spoke with um, talked about how important uh, their allotment was, um, not because they didn't have access to food um, elsewhere or, you know, in other ways, um, in their lives, but because they needed to, um, they needed another place to go, um, you know, besides the apartments that in the cities where they lived. Um, and it, it was, uh, both recreational and, uh, for growing food. So we see sort of, we see those two things, uh, being synthesized, um, in contemporary times as well. Um, it's not so much utilitarian or ornamental, um, but it's, uh, you know, in the case of the Naram Allotment Gardens and many of these other projects, uh, recreation and, um, and productivity are, um, are merging. Um, and, uh, and I was really um, <clears throat> uh, kind of surprised to see that the gardens are, are producing food. Um, still, like people are not just producing cut flowers or, um, you know, using their space as a as a vacation home. Um, they are still growing food because we love to do that. 
Well, yeah, I was thinking, you know, why do we? It's it's just that, uh, and you talk about here, you have the Green Gulch Farm Zen Center. And while you're talking about that, it was, you know, I about, you know, farming is both simple repetitive tasks offer the opportunity to develop mindfulness of the physical performance of work and how, um, how nice it is to just, um, just to be outside, especially, I guess we'll say right now that we're all stuck inside in our home landscapes during our quarantine viruses. So this is really um, sounding very appealing to me right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, (laughs) definitely. Um, And yeah, I mean, I I don't know what um, the current events, you know, what the effect the current current events will have um, if you uh, on um, home gardening. Um, But it does sort of um, cause one to reflect on the victory gardens um, and sort of other times of need when, when people turn to gardening and growing food um, as, as a way to provide for themselves, but as also a way to maintain their, their um, psychological well-being. Have we taken going outside for granted? Because maybe in all of this, we kind of have, you know, we've taken just being able to go anywhere we want and being able to go to the supermarket and buy food. We, and now we've had this kind of scarcity. Well, not, it's really not scarcity, but a little bit. We, everybody feels a little nervous. Um, yeah. I wonder how that's going to, what do you think about that's going to affect uh, uh, designs in the next five years? I do think we're seeing a lot of pressure right now on public open space here in Oregon. Um, we didn't have a stay at home mandate until it was sunny and suddenly everybody just wanted to get out and they went to the beaches and they were crowding the beach towns. And so the governor said, you know, we can't have that happening. And first said the stay at home mandate. And then people were taking this as exercise is still necessary. So they were going to the national forests and the national parks. And so last weekend we had to close all the trailheads in the national forests and parks. And, and you get the sense that maybe we have taken this for granted and that it is incredibly important to get outside, to be in fresh air, to feel the sunshine, but also in a moment when, let's be honest, I think all of us are feeling uh, vulnerable and a bit scared. It's really heartening to walk outside and see flowers blooming, to see birds flying around. So there is a connection to the cycles of the seasons that I think is very grounding and very important. Um, And even just when we first joined a CSA, a community-supported agriculture farm, uh, it was really lovely for all of us to be so deeply connected to the seasons where you think, oh dear, the strawberries are gone. Ah, but if the strawberries are gone, that means the blueberries are here. (laughs) So you start to have favorite weeks and months of the year, depending on which uh, produce is now available. And you start to feel very connected to the, not just the place where you live, but the time where you live. Um, and I think that that's very psychologically healthy and important. Yeah. And, um, I, I, we missed spring this year, all the spring events that we always have and the spring fruit festivals and everything. And it's, I, I'm going to really, um, miss it this year and appreciate it maybe more this summer. Mm-hmm. If we could all go back outside. Yeah. I, um, an interesting thing um, that I've noticed is how 
um, the the sort of uneven economic implications um, of what's happening right now. Um, so, uh, you know, of course, it's sort of devastating to many businesses, um, the, the social distancing and the closure of, um, of uh, you know, of businesses. Um, but um, for others, um, there's been a real um, increase. Um, and and um, uh, one of those uh, in Austin, um, and I'm sure in other places, is uh, local producers um, local farms, uh, because, um, as people are not wanting to go to the grocery store, um, or their food co-op, um, to purchase, um, local producers are providing, uh, delivery service of, um, you know, it's like a sort of CSA delivery, but, but now a sort of online business, um, where you can purchase very much in the way that you purchase at the grocery store, but online, and then it's delivered to your house. So I feel like it um, is stimulating um, the, um, the channels of, um, of supply and demand um, with small local producers, and, um, and that may have a kind of lasting impact on on how we um, source and purchase our food. Um, and I have also seen many of the local um, small farms reaching out to food banks um, and providing to, um, you know, other portions of the community that um, they don't always serve. Uh, so that's really exciting to see. Um, and of course, if, if, if supply increases, we will be um, we will be seeing an increase in agricultural landscapes in our in our cities as well. So your book is is quite timely. <laughs> you you, you, you kind of nailed it here, <laughs> <laughs> Un- unintentionally, and maybe we wish it weren't so timely. But yes, <laughs> it's, it's it's all those happenstance things that that uh, that uh, make make things uh, interesting and and uh, push new ideas forward. Um, for sure. Okay. So we got a chapter here on composition, meaning, and practice. So, um, how do we compose a farm you have here composing the farm spatially and temporally? How do you do this? And and how are you teaching your students in their studios to do this? So that was one of the, um, you know, at the end of the day, the intention behind the book was to impact the practice of landscape architecture. So although, um, Again, as someone who does history and theory, I like creating a kind of narrative about things. Really, we wanted this to be applicable and useful. And so the idea of, at the end of the day, design is about composing experiences for people in the world. And what are the ways that we make farms? And interestingly, or perhaps obviously, um, technology has a huge impact on that. And how are we managing the farm? What's the width of a plow? Um, How much can you plow in a day? Um, So these things start to create patterns that have an aesthetic quality to them, Um, typically fairly regular aesthetic. um, But also there's the timing of crops over the seasons and things like Uh, crop rotation over years, seasons or years, um, rotational grazing with livestock. So how are you changing the appearance of the farm over time in a way that's beneficial to the soil or to the ecosystem? So in my own 
teaching, um, I ask students to consider that. How does this look in year one, in year two, in year three? Um, what are, draw a section and show me the soil and how does the structure of the planting change over the uh, course of the seasons? Um, we're in the Willamette Valley, so we have two very distinct seasons. We have a very rainy season in the fall and winter, and then a very dry season in the summer. So having students think about uh, stormwater management in the wet season and things like irrigation and managing the extreme drought conditions of August and September. So it's really asking students to think about time across the year and the aesthetic and sensual experience of that. And I would just add to that um, uh, that, um, you know, in, in sort of teaching, um, but also in practice, um, you know, I've been trying to um, think about how we can move from extractive models to regenerative models. Um, and so to understand uh, a farm or an agricultural landscape <clears throat> as having a very broad and, and long history. Um, and it, if, you, if you look back in time, um, you, may, you may find extractive um, uh, practices. You may find, um, you know, the history of using enslaved workers um, and uh, that, you know, so what are the possibilities now for employing regenerative practices? Um, and that's something that um, even my current students are looking at um, in a studio um, that they're working on this semester um, with a farm that had uh, previously been um, a cotton, um, a cotton small cotton farm, um, and then turned to... Um, uh, continuous cattle grazing, which was a second and very different form of um, land degradation. Um, so now, trying to envision its future, it's sort of like, yeah, agriculture is a agriculture is a time based practice, and as Roxy said, one that we um, claim as a time based design practice. Um, but it's also, um, you know, theoretically, if you position yourself. Um, along the lines of uh, regenerative um, ideas um, and, and a sort of regenerative standpoint, um, you're looking to actually sort of turn the ship um, in a completely different way um, and to really engage land management and land stewardship towards um, different ends. I think there are also things that we don't... Uh... We haven't been great at talking about in the education of designers. Um, and one of the things that I think we both saw coming forward in so many of these case studies was um, uh, issues like, you know, supply chains and economics. Where's what's being produced on the farm? Where does it go? And if it's in a an economic uh, com commerce model, are you making enough money off of it? to actually support doing the activity. Um, so economics and supply chain and also labor practices and who's doing the work is the way that the work's being done equitable and ethical. Um, and, you know, again, many of the early, early case studies are 
enslaved workers, it's in colonial eras. So there are all kinds of highly unjust, unethical labor practices. Um, and some of the ones that are most kind of inspiring and utopian are the ones around World War II, where the labor is often being done by the people who will consume the food. Um, and, you know, it's it's hard to know if that's a realistic model moving forward. So we need to be very aware as designers that when we compose something spatially and temporally, it's also engaged in labor markets and economic markets and what are the impacts of that and how, to what extent can we realistically engage with that? Um, and to what extent can we be sort of utopian about things? And I think asking students to at least engage that struggle is often a very fruitful conversation to have. Yeah, because I was just about to say, it's a, it's a lot of work to have just even a small vegetable garden. And uh, as a, I was in 4-H when I was younger, and uh, we always had a garden at my, uh, my parents always had it. And we, uh, this is kind of a, we called it rabbit doodles. And we would like rake it up, put it in the garden and, and build up the soil. And, you know, it was, it was time intensive. It was worth it, but uh, it was best tomatoes in town, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it does take a lot of work. Just yeah. And we, we have a farm in our, um, in our department on campus, it's a small, I want to say it's about a half an acre. And, you know, it's quite beautiful, but it's also worked by a team of instructors and two sessions of a class of about 60 students. So you think about a half an acre of agriculture being worked by, what is that, 120, 130 people of course, it's going to be quite lovely, and students love it, and people love to come visit. Um, but it's a, this insanely disproportionate amount of labor to uh, space and production. Um, and so we do ask the students to kind of reflect on how is your food being produced, where is it being produced, and what's the effort going into it? And as a result, what are you paying at the store? And really, it, it, it starts to drill down into some pretty deep questions about ethics and values. Like, what do we mean by value? Um, and those are always, I think, very productive conversations to have with students. Um, yeah, and uh, kind of goes along with that is the interdisciplinary collaboration. What kind of interdisciplinary collaboration is required uh, to pull together a project like this? Well, that's one of the themes um, that we saw uh, throughout the case studies, particularly the contemporary projects. Um, that uh, you know, I, I I think, I mean, landscape architecture is often uh, uh, landscape architecture projects are often um, interdisciplinary collaborations. So it's not that the farmscape is is different um, in that respect. However, um, I think that. Uh, you know, there are very there are there there is one one particular collaborator um, in the in a kind of farmscape that you might not have or you wouldn't have um, in in a different kind of public landscape um, or residential landscape project, which is um, the the farm consultant. Um, so we we do see sort of farm consultants in the later projects um, and um, teaming with biologists. Um, and uh, horticulturists um, and uh, with the landscape architect. Um, and, you know, then you may, you may have engineers 
um, on the project or ecologists um, or even historians. Um, because um, when, when you're talking about land, um, it touches on all of these different um, facets, um, all of these different disciplines. Um, and so um, in d- design is sort of uh, an art of bringing together experts. Um, and sometimes a landscape architect is a little bit like um, a conductor, um, sort of managing um, information um, and work. Um, that others um, provide and sort of collaborating with them to to pull out uh, what's really essential. Um, and, uh, y- you know, we talk a lot in the book about Overlook um, as an example of an interdisciplinary collaboration. Um, and there, I think, um, what's really fascinating is to see how the long-term monitoring of uh, the design um, is providing new information, um, a kind of feedback loop for the designers and the, um, the owners of the property um, and the biologists um, as to the efficacy of, um, of what's been tried. Um, so um, if, you're, if you're trying to achieve greater biodiversity um, on an agricultural landscape and you've proposed a series of interventions, is it becoming more biodiverse? And th- that requires long-term monitoring, um, and, and there it's being done. Um, so I think that the interdisciplinary collaboration is, um, is common across projects. It looks a little bit different with the farmscape. And then um, the need for, um, for monitoring long-term is pretty critical. <laughs> And, you know, I, I want to jump back just a minute too, to, um, what about, um, animal husbandry, um, and, uh, ecology you have, yeah, you talk about here on Overlook and how, how are we, or are they, are you suggesting that people integrate, you know, animals, uh, husbandry with the landscape because they're important too, especially bees right now. That's right. And, um, you know, I mean, animals are integral, um, in many ways, um, you know, I think that the um, a- animals and, and plants and soils are all interconnected. Um, you know, animals deposit manure. Um, you know, we, we've learned a lot about rotational grazing, or a lot has been documented and um, studied associated with rotational grazing, where um, cattle, through the process of, um, you know, uh, uh, removing a portion of the biomass of the grasses actually stimulates those grasses um, and stimulates the biodiversity of the pasture. Um, they deposit their manure, which is a natural fertilizer. Um, and then, you know, some um, uh, it, it's becoming more common to have multiple species sort of moving through agricultural land. So um, cattle and then chicken a few days later, they, they scratch up the manure looking for insects and um, deposit their own. So there are these sort of cycles of animals moving through the landscape, um, which is uh, very consequential to the plant life um, and to the fertility of the soils. Um, so I think that it's, uh, in terms of regenerative practices, that's really exciting. Um, and, uh, and I've, I sort of in my, in my um, sort of you know two a.m. moments, sometimes wonder: Are we going to see animals return to the city ever? Um, you know, we used to have animals in our public 
spaces. Prospect Park um, used to have uh, sheep and, uh, you know, we, we used to have um, animal husbandry in cities. Um, I know goats are being used more and more to manage public landscapes, but I wonder if in the future we might, we might return, return them to urban places a little bit. And as you do the reading to that's required to to write a book like this, you start to get very um, concerned about our food supply. Um, and what Phoebe was just describing about rotational grazing, it's good for the soil, it's good for the plants, but it's also good for the animals. And the chickens scratching through the manure helps um, minimize or eliminate vectors of uh, infestations. And so I'm trying to put this in delicate terms. <laughs> um, but you wind up with much healthier animals and you don't have to use a bunch of drugs or hormones to or antibiotics to keep the animals healthy. The animals are less stressed. Um, and so you wind up with fewer things like either residual um, artificial hormones or residual stress hormones from the animals themselves in the food that we're eating. And so, you know it seems obvious or trite to say everything is connected, but everything is connected. And um, you read sort of Temple Grandin's work about feedlots and the kind of stressors that animals go through in those situations. Um, or you read Michael Pollan talking about similar things and the use of the mass use of hormones and antibiotics in say chicken um, farming. And, you know, it's, it's just not, a healthy way to be producing the food that we're eating. Yeah. And I was thinking about, I, uh, one of my graduate projects, I was talking about just bird migration and how important, you know, if we don't have birds, then that's a key indicator and, uh, came up with a phrase, you know, everything has an ecological function and consequence and we have to be careful. Definitely. And, uh, and I think this, this book really, you know, shows the research and, uh, and impacts and, uh, et cetera, and all the considerations, uh, for, uh, for just for us to be healthy and everybody to be healthy too. Well, and yeah. I think at the end of the day, that was one of the goals of the book was to provide some sort of hopeful ideas about the idea that places can be productive they can be culturally significant. They can be sensually engaging and beautiful. Um, and that you don't have to choose one or the other. You can create and design places that sustain us both quite literally and physically, but also aesthetically, culturally, emotionally. And that, that aesthetic and cultural um, and emotional connection that some of these projects um, you know, achieve maybe, um, uh, oh, I mean, they're, they're all producing food, um, for sure, but, or, or other agricultural products. Um, but I think that the, um, the way that they connect people to a different kind of, um, agricultural activity, one that is more sustaining or, or like literally sustainable, um, without um, so many added and damaging inputs um, is is a great benefit because um, you know the I, I think the educational aspect here can't be dimin diminished 
Um, and we're, we are seeing a cultural shift in attitudes um, about how our food is produced. Um, and, uh, but, but, but I think we still have a long way to go. And my hope is that these projects, um, as more and more people encounter um, agriculture, and it is it is shaped in a way that they can understand um, how it works um, and and experience it firsthand. Um, that that they will be uh, supporting um, of of more um, healthy practices for for both the land and and humans and other species. Yes, and on that note. Ladies, it's been lovely to have you here today. Thank you for being here. Um, I know we've taken up a lot of your time, and this has uh, been a very interesting conversation while we're all stuck inside. Um, can you tell the audience, what are some of the projects that you are working on now? Um, I am currently working on a project that looks at co-designing with animals. And so it's going to be a combination of a design competition and then gathering the work from that competition as well as some invited speakers at an exhibit and symposium. And the prompt is going to be, um, what if we designed not for animals, but with animals, and they were actively engaged in the creation of the places that we're designing? Um, what does it mean to design with your non-human neighbors? So... That's in the very early stages right now and probably a project that's going to go for about a year, year and a half or so. And I am working on a series of design projects um, uh, through my firm Forge um, that are centered on um, soil, soil stewardship um, and the capacity of our soils um, to mitigate climate change. Um, that, you know, this is something that, um, <clears throat> has been discussed, um, and, uh, and, you know, has made the New York times, um, as, as a discussion about the agricultural landscape broadly, um, that, um, agricultural lands, if, if management practices or if, if agricultural methods shift, um, that we could actually see significant carbon drawdown, um, uh, through our agricultural soils, but these design projects are really um, sort of looking at the city um, and how the soils of our city um, could actually um, help us to mitigate climate change. Um, and so we're borrowing some um, some imp- uh, some knowledge and some practices from regenerative agriculture and transferring transferring them to the urban landscape. Oh, so we have a lot to look forward to. And uh, again, uh, for audience, this is a great book for uh, a studio, and uh, it really lays it out very well. I hope that other educators will uh, uh, get this book and and, uh, and read it. So um, thank you for being here today. And to let uh, the audience know, this is Farmscape, The Design of Productive Landscapes by Phoebe Liquar and Roxy Thorin, published by Routledge in 2020. And again, I'm Tricia from sunny Key Largo, Florida, your host for New Books in Architecture with a special mini-series in Landscape Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you have any ideas for books, please send me an email at plantspeoplelove at gmail.com. And thank you for both being here today. 
Thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for Trish. having us. It's been very fun. Pleasure.